we've sung some songs about Christ and his death on the cross. We've read scripture that tells the account of Jesus dying on the cross and being buried in a grave. Today is a very solemn day, thank God, that Sunday is coming. This morning we're going to begin at the upper room. And then we're going to make a journey along following the footsteps of Jesus ultimately to the grave. And as you journey through this, I'm a visual learner. And you as a church family, a little over a month ago, sent me to Israel. Everyone asked, what was the best part of visiting Israel? And there was many things. Every day was wow. But the very best day, it was actually the last day while we were there, is we woke up early in the morning and we followed the footsteps of Jesus as he went to the cross. And the places that we're talking about today, I was there just a few weeks ago. And I'm not going to give you a travel log. I'll get click, click. And today we did this. And then click, click. But the thought behind it is that when you've walked those footsteps, we naturally say, I want to share that with others. So my hope is as I share this today, this isn't just here and this happened and then this happened, that you're able to make this personal and recognize and realize that this is something that really happened. And then we can personalize and say, this happened for me. We want to allow God to examine your heart. And there's something very confrontational in a wonderful way when we are confronted with the Word of God, we're confronted with the cross and we say, this happened for me. On Sunday, we remembered what's known as the triumphal entry. It's the one week before Easter. It's the day we remember when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and the crowds were crying out while he was on the little donkey colt. They were crying out the word Hosanna. And on Sunday, our principle was, and it's known as Palm Sunday, we remembered that Jesus said yes to Hosanna. As the crowds were crying out Hosanna, which is a word that literally means, please save us. These crowds were crying out, please save us. A few days later, they were crying out, crucify him. But Jesus, rather than saying, no, I'm not going to save you, continued on that journey. We have a principle for this message this morning, and it's another yes statement. Jesus said yes to the cross. He said yes to what he was going to suffer through. He said yes to the salvation for you and also the salvation for me and the salvation for the rest of the world. But before we get into the book of Mark, which we're going to follow through the journey of Jesus using the book of Mark today, I want to go back a little bit further. 700 B.C., there was a prophet in Israel named Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet of God that if you read through the book of Isaiah, it was going through a very difficult time in the life of Israel. But he was giving prophecies of their coming Savior. And in the book of Isaiah, chapter number 53, verse number 3, it says this. Remember, this was 700 years before Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And we read those words, and those aren't really the words we go, that's what I want to be known for. I want to be known as a person that's been despised. I want to be known as a person that's been rejected. I want to be known as a person of, of man of sorrows. That just sounds tremendous. That, that sounds like what you have on a cat poster and say, this is the goal, to be a man of sorrows. I want to be acquainted with grief. But you know what? That's exactly what it was prophesied that Jesus would feel and would be. But can you relate to that? In your own life as an individual, can you see where you in your life, you can say, you know, I feel sometimes, I feel despised. I've suffered through rejection. Or maybe even you're currently suffering through active rejection right now. And you say, sorrows, I know sorrows. I know grief. In fact, I'm experiencing grief right now. My encouragement to you today as we journey through the journey to the cross is that Jesus knows exactly what you're feeling. He knows where you've been. He knows where you're going. He knows your best day, but he also knows your worst. And as a result of that, he comes alongside us. So we're going to begin with that prophecy. And a little spoiler alert, at the end, we're going to come back to that at the, at the end as well. If you see in your bulletin, you'll see a map. You'll see there's several different points there. Now, obviously, that map is not to scale. And in your bulletin, you'll be able to follow along. I'm a visual learner. And something I find helpful is when you realize that Jesus zigzagged across the, the city of Jerusalem, then it helps us understand the time frame and how things took place on the night of his betrayal and arrest. But it began with, him in the upper room. The upper room is the first point where Jesus began. Today, almost every single one of these spots that we're talking about, there is a church of some description on top of them, and there are magnificent structures on almost every single one of these places. And the upper room is no exception. There's these beautiful domes. It was built over a thousand years ago during the time of the Crusaders. But it's the location they believe is where the upper room took place. And during the upper room, Jesus gathered his disciples around. They were remembering the Passover. And it's a long, drawn-out meal full of symbolism. And Jesus was teaching them. And during that time, he washes his disciples' feet because just previous to that, they were arguing with one another which one of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus teaches them a very, very strong message by washing their feet and telling them that the servant is really the leader. A leader is really a servant. And he, does, and he washes one particular disciple's feet, that disciple that you're aware of. It says in the book of John, chapter number 13, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And he goes on in that passage and says, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly and Judas gets up and leaves going down the road to the high priest's palace in order to reject Jesus in order to turn his back on his savior and Jesus just a few minutes earlier was washing that disciple's feet 
But we look at Judas and we think, well, Judas rejected. Judas turned his back on Jesus. But also the rest of the disciples, Jesus said to them in the book of Mark, chapter 14, verse 27, he says, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. So if you see on your little map there, the number one, that's where they begin in the upper room. And while they're in the upper room, Jesus said they all fall away. He institutes what we remember as the Lord's Supper or communion. And then after that time, they sang a hymn together. And then they gather themselves while Judas was away with the priests. And they walk towards the number two there, the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're walking along down past the temple. And the way it is, it's down down in a little valley. And in the bottom of this valley is what would have been a very large garden filled with olive groves. And olive trees are all throughout Israel. But this particular area, there was a concentration of them. And not that long ago, in the scope of history, like within the last hundred years, they discovered a cave down the bottom of this valley that would have been part of the Garden of Gethsemane. In that cave was a wine press. And the understanding is that's most likely the location where the disciples would have gone into. It would have been warm. It would have been secure. And they would have gone in there, and that's where the disciples were sleeping. But Jesus, as it goes up the hill, takes three of his disciples with them. He takes, and it says in the book of Mark, chapter 14, it says in verses 33 and 34, And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful. The disciples honestly had no idea what was going to take place in just a few minutes' time. They had no idea what was going to take place the next day of Jesus dying on the cross. What they were thinking of is, you know what, we just had a really big meal and we just had the Passover meal. It's been a long day. and I shouldn't yawn because then you'll, you'll copy me. And oh, so if any of you yawn and it yawn there and they're tired. And you know what, all the other disciples are down the hill in the cave sleeping. And I really wish I was with them. But Jesus wants us with them. And Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful. He understood that he was going to be despised and rejected. He understood the sorrow of the sins of the world that were going to be placed upon his shoulders in a short period of time. The scripture says in the book of Luke that he was up and he began to to bleed sweat of blood, which talks about the, the immense stress that Jesus was under. And pretty much across Israel, every place is a historic site. There's a magnificent church built directly on top of it. And this very spot is one of those spots. In Israel, there's a church called the Church of the Nations. It's also the Church of the Agony. And the Church of the Agony is absolutely a magnificent structure. Inside, it's all dark because it's supposed to replicate the night sky. And in the very front of the church, this large building, there's an exposed rock. Now, we don't know if this is really the case at all, but this is the uh, tradition tells people, is that's the rock that Jesus prayed upon. That's the rock that he shed his blood upon, where it says in Luke chapter 22, verses 44 and 45, and they, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, 
and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples, and the disciples were doing what? Found them sleeping for sorrow. Jesus is here in anguish and in agony, taking on your sin and my sin and the sins of the world, and the disciples are there sleeping. Jesus, once again, is rejected by his closest inner core. And then along comes Judas, the betrayer. He's now gone to the priest, and he's gathered together the, the priest and the, the priest guards, and they've come down into the garden, and they found Jesus because Judas knew exactly where they were going to be. And Judas comes in Mark chapter 14, verse 45, and says, Rabbi, which literally means teacher, and he kissed him. And then a few verses later, these disciples that not that long before, while they were in the upper room, had been making pledges to and about Jesus. They're making these pledges saying, we will never turn our backs on you. We will never deny you. Just a few hours earlier, they were making pledges, especially Peter, which we're going to talk about on Sunday, were making pledges saying, we will never leave you. And then a few minutes later, Verse 50 says, and they all left him and fled. Jesus is feeling not just rejection. He's feeling anguish and agony and sorrow. And all this time, the people that are closest to him are running away, not understanding what's going on. Jesus is now arrested. And he's been arrested and he's taken up the hill, through the valley, through the backways, up to Annas' palace and also Caiaphas' palace. But it begins with Annas' palace, and then it goes down to Caiaphas' palace. And that's a picture on the screen of the church that's over where Caiaphas' palace was. And he was the high priest. And they call it a palace because it really was a magnificent structure. On top, it was a huge home with multiple layers. But underneath... The high priest's palace was a dungeon. And you could walk into that dungeon, and that's where they believed that they held Jesus. That's where they beat him and mocked him. And just outside is the courtyard where Peter stood warming himself by the fire, waiting for Jesus and the trial. And that trial was full of false accusations. The religious leaders of the day in Mark 14, verse 55 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus. Why? To put him to death. But they found none. And the passage goes on in verse 61 and says, And he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. As a result of that, they are uproar in, in rage, and they begin in verse number 30, uh, 64, crying out for him as a blasphemer to be put to death, but they didn't have permission to put people to death. And it says, you have heard the, his blasphemy. What is, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. 
And that's when it's understood that he was put down into the dungeon area and he was mocked and beaten by the palace guards and by the priests at that time. It says in verse 65, And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying, Prophesy! They're mocking Jesus. And the guards received him with blows. Then they sent him off to the governor Pilate. And there's an area just outside the temple walls known as the Praetorium. And that's where Pilate would have, have had his council. And it would have been a large courtyard area there. And they, they would have brought him to them. And then Pilate sees where Jesus was originally from and knows that King Herod is, is in the city at that time for the Passover. So sends him across the town to King Herod Agrippa to be questioned by him. And it says in Luke chapter number 23, verses 9 through 11, it says, So he questioned him at some length. This is Herod. And he made no answer. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. They're mocking Jesus. They're making fun of Jesus. Jesus was just a few minutes earlier sweating blood because he knew the anguish and the agony of carrying the sins of the world while all while being mocked by the people he was dying for. And they send them back to Pilate. And Pilate comes to the conclusion that Jesus is not guilty. But offers them a solution. And he says, oh, I will wash my hands and I'll, I'll let Barabbas go. Or I'll let Jesus go. And they all cry out for Barabbas. And it says in Luke 23, in verse 14, this is Pilate talking. I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And then he asked the people the question, should I release him? And the people began to cry out. We find in Mark chapter 15, verses 14, uh, 13 through 15. And they cried out again. This is the crowd of people to Pilate. Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And the next line is a simple little line that makes me personally very queasy. And uncomfortable. It says, And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. That scourging, and if you ever had it described, and I purposely didn't put any pictures on the screen, knowing that we had a, a mixed crowd with children in the room, it's something very confronting. And I would encourage you, if you're mature enough, to look it up and to research a scourging from the Romans. The cat of nine tails and the, line, the nine short whips with rocks or glass or, or bone tied into the ends of them would rip the skin. And it's understood that Jesus most likely, not just the physical pain of, being, of losing all that skin and the, the, the pain of the beating, but also would have lost the understanding is probably about a third of his blood supply. He was physically very weak at this time. It says, and delivered him to be crucified. During that time, the Roman soldiers, which were experts at torture, they knew exactly how to torture a person to gain the greatest pain effect possible. And those of you who are our little sisters, you think your brothers are mean, they, these men, were, they knew exactly how to inflict pain. 
During this time, they, they wrapped a large thorns into a, a crown and shoved it onto Jesus' head. They, they mocked him, they beat him, they spat on him, and they put a sign above him on the cross saying, you know, King of the Jews. And they're crying out to Jesus, Hail, King of the Jews, in a mocking way. And all along, Jesus doesn't say anything. I've no doubt he cried out in pain, but he does not say anything to defend himself at all during this time. And now he's carrying his cross. Something I learned which I'll share with you. Oftentimes it's depicted that Jesus was carrying the full T-shaped cross. The understanding was that most likely he was, he was carrying just the cross member of the cross and he would have been tied to it at that time. He wouldn't have been nailed to it at that time, but he would have been tied to that cross. And so he was carrying that cross and when Simon from Cyrene came and helped him, he would have basically been dragging Jesus along on that beam because they would never have untied him. You know, the, the horrendous nature of, of the crucifixion is not just the physical on the cross. It was actually the, everything leading up to it. And it says in Mark 15, which we read earlier, which I'm going to read again. We see number four is the cross. The pathway that Jesus would have taken, and, and it's historically known as the Via Della Rosa. And in Mark 15, it says in verse 29, And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So the chief priests and the scribes mocked him and said, and, and said to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They were mocking so much they were saying, if he comes down from the cross, then we will believe him. And even the people that were on the cross, this is the next line, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. That's something remarkable. Even the other people that were guilty and convicted of their crimes were on the cross. They were also mocking Jesus. And other passages talk about one man actually repenting while he was on the cross and turning to Jesus, while the other that was being crucified never repented. Could you imagine being there in all the pain and the agony and still hating Jesus so much that you were you were calling out and mocking while you yourself were dying. You remember that prophecy in Isaiah 53? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. While Jesus was on the cross, there's a number of sayings that he makes while he's on the cross. I'm just going to focus upon one for just a moment. The saying that he made while he was on the cross is found in Luke chapter 23. And in verse number 34, Jesus prays a prayer to God, all while being mocked and rejected, being made fun of. His people, the people below him were the people that had inflicted so much pain. Across in the distance were his disciples in, in the distance, and they too were people that had just that night ran away and hidden away from him. And Jesus prays and said, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. If you stop for a moment and you humanize this, 
Because oftentimes we clean up the cross and we make it something nice and neat and in a box. But we begin to humanize this. And I've just scratched the surface this morning. The prayer of Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, is in direct opposition of everything that he's been treated in the last 24 hours. He's been mocked. He's been rejected. He's been spat upon. He's been slapped. He's been physically beaten to the pulp. And he cries out, Father, forgive them. And you begin to personalize that. And you think, he's saying, Father, forgive the disciples. Father, forgive these mocking and hateful priests. Father, forgive the crowds. And the understanding of where it was located, the Romans wouldn't crucify in an out-of-the-way place. They would crucify on a main road so it was as public as possible. One is to inflict fear upon everyone watching, but also to humiliate the person to the fullest extent. Jesus was in a place where people would be walking by judging him. And all along, Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them. He's saying, forgive the mocking crowds. But let's personalize that. Father, forgive you. Forgive me. Rather than Jesus saying, I know what you've experienced. I'm a man of sorrow. I'm a man of grief. I'm a man who's been rejected and despised. Rather than saying, I know what you're feeling. Go work it out for yourself. Jesus says, I know what you're feeling. I want you to receive forgiveness. And we remember the cross today, not because of how horrendous it was, although it was horrible. We remember it because it's a symbol of our forgiveness. If we go back 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah 53, verse 3 again says, He was despised and rejected by men. That rejected by men, I looked it up, it literally means to be rejected by everyone. By all mankind, he's been rejected. That's what that passage means. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And I asked the question in the very beginning, in what ways can you see your own story relating with being despised? Can you see yourself being rejected and of sorrows and grief? We turn that around, and what do we see? The very next verse. That's verse number three. The very next verse in that prophecy is verse number four. I'm going to read verses four and verse seven, where it says this. Surely he has borne our griefs. Quickly stop there. The word born means to lift up. Surely he has lifted up our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Jesus bore, he lifted up your griefs. He lifted up your sorrow and your oppression and your affliction and your rejection. And the scripture says he lifted them up on the cross and in a wonderful way, he replaced your rejection with his forgiveness. And you know what's beautiful about that? 
is that we don't have to remain any longer in the person that we used to be. We no longer have to remain in our rejection. Life is full of rejection. We live in a horrible world. We live in a world filled with grief. That doesn't mean we become emotionalist or we have perfect lives without any problems. But it changes our perspective. Now we are people who are forgiven. No longer carrying around griefs and sorrow and oppression and affliction. Now we're, call it, we're living a life of forgiveness. The cross is a horrible symbol of torture that Jesus Christ has redeemed to make new. And you know what's incredible? We walk through the journey of the cross, and you see on the, on the, the little map there, ends up in the grave. And that's where we're going to finish this morning, is Jesus was taken by Joseph of Arimathea and taken to a brand new grave and placed into this grave. And they sealed the grave. And other passages talk about the fact that Roman soldiers were put there to guard the grave so no one would steal the bodies. The disciples are scattered and hiding in the upper room for fear of the Jews. You imagine the time of waiting and the time of uncertainty, not really fully realizing what you and I know, that Sunday is coming and Jesus is going to rise from the dead. And he's going to triumphantly conquer sin and triumphantly conquer death so that we can have a relationship with God. I've said all that to come to this one little conclusion here. The journey to the cross is not something that just happened 2,000 years ago. It's something that can happen in your life even today. I'm grateful as a young child, I came to understand the journey to the cross. I came to understand my sinfulness and my inability to reach God in my own strength and own power. And I recognized very early on as a child that I needed Jesus. I'm grateful for parents who taught me the truth as a young age that's protected me from a lot of hurt and a lot of rejection and a lot of pain. But at the same time as I understand. And I'm going to encourage you to turn that around upon you. The simple question is, have you journeyed to the cross? Have you received the forgiveness of your sins? If you have, that's a wonderful celebration. And Easter, as dark as the Friday is, is a celebration of the Sunday. I can just encourage you for just a few moments. Stop and consider if you have yet to place your trust upon Christ as your Savior. If you're yet to journey to the cross and to accept that free gift of salvation, that forgiveness of your sin, the replacement of your rejection and your sorrow and your guilt and replace it on uh, your grief, place it upon Jesus so that you can receive his forgiveness. Today can be that day. There's no magical words. The Bible talks about admitting that you're a sinner and the belief in your heart that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the son of God. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what he said he was going to do. And the beautiful thing is that we simply have to accept that free gift of salvation ourselves. We don't earn it. We don't, we don't try to pay for it. We simply accept that free gift of salvation. And you can do that even where you are today. So in a few moments' time, we're going to pray. 
And I would encourage every single one of us to spend some time in prayer thanking Jesus for the cross. But if you're yet to place your trust upon Christ as your Savior, would you talk to Jesus today? Ask Him to save you from your sins. Ask Him to give you that forgiveness when you deserve the guilt and the shame and the pain of our sin. And if you have more questions, nothing would give me more joy and honor than to open up God's Word, the Bible, and to show you out of the Bible how you can accept Christ as your Savior. Lord, I want to thank you for the cross, that symbol of pain and rejection that you've redeemed with joy and life. And we look upon it with, with happiness, knowing what it symbolizes. It symbolizes our forgiveness. Lord, thank you for taking our pain. Thank you for taking our sorrow and our grief and our rejection and redeeming it with your forgiveness. Lord, we, we remember today, Lord, I pray that we won't leave as the people that are dismissive of the cross, but we will be focused upon what you did for us and the sacrifice that you made for us. We look forward to Sunday and the resurrection and the joyful celebration of the new life that we have in you. Lord, I pray that you will allow us and, and use us in this next few days to share the good news of the gospel with others, to take the opportunity to share this, this forgiveness with other people also. And in Jesus' name, amen.